are listening to the sermon audio from Renaissance Church. We pray that this message equips you to be formed into the image of Christ as you grow in your love of God and it fuels you to love your neighbor as yourself. We are convinced that while this sermon audio is beneficial, it should only be supplemental and not replace local church involvement, the pastor God has put over your life, or your commitment to gather in person with other believers to make more disciples for the fame of Jesus. Peace be with you. We're going to continue in our series on Lamentations, today reading to you from chapter 4. How the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold is changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion worth their weight in fine gold, how they are regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hands. Even jackals offer the breast, they nurse their young. But the daughter of my people has become cruel, like the ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who are brought up in purple embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire. Now their face is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones. It has become as dry as wood. Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger, who wasted away, pierced by lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger, and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. The kings of the earth did not believe, nor any of the inhabitants of the world, that foe or enemy could enter the gates of Jerusalem. This was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests, who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders. Our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. They dogged our steps so that we could not walk in our streets. Our end drew near. Our days were numbered, for our end had come. Our pursuers were swifter than the eagles in the heavens. They chased us on the mountains. They lay in wait for us in the wilderness. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we said, under his shadow, we shall live among the nations. Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom you who dwell in the land of ooze, But to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. 
This is the word of the Lord. Oh, how I long to hear uh, those communal amens uh, in the future. Again, if you guys don't know me, my name is Rob, and I'm one of the elders here at Renaissance Church. On behalf of our staff and our elder team, we are so glad that you chose to gather with us together here on this Zoom platform. Um, if you've been um, going through the gallery, seeing who's here, who's not here, if you notice somebody who's not here, we encourage you, shoot them a quick, te quick text uh, with this link so they can come uh, and join us. Um, and if you want to follow along uh, through my sermon, um, we will have um, the notes available to you in the chat feature, but uh, there's an easier feature you can use, which is our house to house worship guide, which has all of my notes, scripture references, and even quotes um, from various authors. That's going to help us mind and uh, the, the depths of the treasures of Lamentations 4 this morning. We find ourselves in Lamentations 4 as we're going through our series on Lamentations, where we find uh, a broken world with broken lives and broken hearts. And last week we saw that the poet proactively, proactively stop listening to himself and begin preaching to himself that God is forever faithful, that God's mercies are brand new every single morning when he wakes up and his love it abounds. However, if, if we thought that those astonishing words of hope and assurance and even the poet's testimony of God's deliverance might lead to a happy ending, we're brought back to reality here in Lamentations 4. We're back to the reality of a city in total devastation and dehumanizing degradation. You see, there, there isn't this magic equation to stop lamenting. I mean, that would be nice, right? If we can just magically stop the tears, magically stop the sadness. No, look, lament, as we, we've said in the past, is, is a prayer in pain that develops a deeper trust in God. In a book that we mentioned earlier called Dark Clouds and Deep Mercy by a guy named Mark Vrogop, he writes this. He says, lament is how you live between the poles of a hard life and trusting God's goodness. See, it's not just that we need to learn how to lament. It's not just that we need to learn from lament, that we learn more about ourselves and more about the, the character of God, but we also must learn how to live with lament. We have to learn how to live with lament, which the poet keeps doing in Lamentations 4. And this is not lack of spiritual maturity. No, lament is evidence of Christ-likeness. Listen to what Esther Fleece says in No More Faking Fine. She says spiritual maturity does not mean living a lamentless life. Rather, it means we grow into becoming good lamenters, and thus we grow in our need of God. Being a spiritually mature Christian doesn't mean you lament less. Sometimes it means you lament more because you see the sorrows in this world with better eyes. You see it as Jesus sees it. We weep over the sorrow we weep over what sin has brought into this world. 
and the lament we find in chapter four today, it'll teach us to weep over our vain comforts, to weep over the false securities and safeties we have sought in created things. But it'll teach us to take comfort in the fact that the punishment is complete. You see, idolatry for Israel has already been punished. It's in the past. And so the poet is telling them to take comfort that it is finished. Idolatry, it has already been punished. So we can take comfort that it, it is finished. And we'll see this in four ways. We'll observe this from Israel's first, her past and present. Second, her priests and her prophets. Third, her powerful that are in the pits. And fourth, her punishment and promise. So we have her past and present, first point. Second point, priests and prophets. Third, the powerful in the pits. And fourth, punishment and promise. So if you guys are ready, let's dive into these first 12 verses as we look at Israel's past and present. That's our first point. Now, we, we know this. People love posting before and after pictures to social media, right? They love showing the 45 pounds they were down from six months ago. Or they love showing the change from their mustard yellow colored walls to now this beautiful coral. But those aren't the only before and after pictures that we see posted. There's before and after pictures of utter devastation. We know what hospital hallways used to look like before the pandemic. And now they're crowded. We've seen before and after pictures of hurricanes and tornadoes wiping out entire towns. We've seen before and after pictures of warfare. And this is the picture that the poet is painting in verses 1 through 12. Chapter 4 goes back to that same alphabet structure as chapters 1 and 2. It's a vivid and gut-wrenching depiction of the two-year siege of the Babylonian Empire. It's the depths of destruction that Israel, this is, this is the hard news to swallow, that Israel brought on herself. It's Israel's before and after Facebook post. Look with me in verse 1 right now. The poet writes, how the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold is changed. The holy stones, as the temple buildings, they lie scattered on the head of every street. What he's doing right now is he's naming the created things that they sought security in from the past and now showing the present reality. In verse 2, he's saying what was once precious is now worthless. In verses three and four, we have children, the blessings of an inheritance that should be well-nourished. They're now starving on the streets. In verse five, we see the rich who are meant to look ruddy and healthy. They're now in a rubbish heap. They once had beautiful looking clothes and now they look like ashes, gray, dull, and dim. Their good health, they're now shrunken and shriveled. You can see their rib cages. In verses seven and eight. And now we have mothers who were once compassionate on their children, now resorting to cannibalism. Look with me in verse 10. 
The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during destruction of the daughter of my people. This is the past and the present, the before and after. Even the holy men, the priests, have become dirty and defiled. Unclean, unclean, get away, they say. It's, it's gotten so bad that they wish that they would have died by the sword rather than the slow crawl towards starving to death. Lamentations 4.9 says, Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger, who wasted away pierced by the lack of fruits in the field. And if that weren't bad enough, the poet in verse 6 compares their judgment with the ultimate scene of judgment. Now, if, if you were an Israel Israelite, what would have been the ultimate picture of God's wrath and judgment uh, in the fallen world? What would it be? Sodom and Gomorrah, right? It's the proverbial prototype for God's wrath against arrogant human wickedness. What the poet is saying, at least their judgment was quick. Israel's lasted two years and is still ongoing because people are dying of hunger. Now, what is the, the poet trying to accomplish in all these specific examples of suffering? Well, he's, he's trying to show the complete result of putting trust, attempting to find comfort in anything but God. That when we try to find comfort and security and assurance in the created things, destruction is comprehensive. See, Israel, they sought security, safety, and relief in riches and wealth and good food and ruddy good looks with six-pack washboard abs. They sought comfort in the latest hip clothes, and status, and performative religiosity. Nothing that we struggle with today, right? And now you can't tell the difference between those who once had more or less. Because suffering doesn't play favorites. Suffering doesn't play preference games. No, when you look at their present state, you can't tell who was once rich or poor, once who, who was once privileged or unprivileged. And listen, times have changed, but hearts that seek to trust in created things haven't. And the poet mourns the effects of not just suffering on a society, and not simply because of loss. It's a lament to the fragility and to futility of trusting in anything but God. This is Israel's past and present. And now the poet turns to the priests and the prophets. It's our second point in verses 13 to 16. I mean, we just heard read in verse 12 that no one, not even the outside nations thought that this was capable of happening to Israel. I mean, this was the, the nation that defeated the powerhouse of Pharaoh. This was the nation that, that toppled Jericho 
with choirs and shouting. This was the nation of prosperity and wealth in a land flowing with milk and honey and all the amenities you can think of. I couldn't believe it was happening. So what happened? The poet does not pull any punches. Look in verse 13 with me. He says, this was for. He's pointing back to all the destruction. All that destruction was for the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. All of this, what he's saying is that all of this destruction couldn't, could have been avoided if it wasn't for the fools that were found in leadership. It could have been avoided if it, if it weren't for the pathetic priest and the prosperity preaching prophets who thought that they knew better than God. You see, this wasn't just a societal problem. It was. But even more, it was a leadership problem. I mean, we learned back in chapter 2 that the priest and the prophets, they failed to expose Israel's sins. Her sins of injustice against the poor and the marginalized and her idolatry of worshiping the gods of other nations. But here, we, in chapter 4, we learn even more. They killed the righteous. Who were the righteous? Well, they were the ones who were calling for people to repent. Prophets like Micah, and Amos, and even Jeremiah, who many think wrote Lamentations, their head was called for. So these false prophets made it seem like Israel's life was better than it actually was. You're good. You do you. Your political pandering of other nations, normal. Your worship of political regimes, normal. Your complacency with the gods of the other nations, normal. Your comfort that you've sought and created things, normal. These were false priests, false prophets who refused to expose idolatry, who refused to call evil, evil, and sin, sin. What none of the leaders called for was for wholehearted repentance towards God and wholehearted dependence upon God. But instead, they murdered the prophets who did. Why did they murder them? Because they, the prophets exposed their false security and comfort in idols. Now, what is an idol? An idol is simply an object of trust that takes the emotional and practical place of God. It takes the emotional and practical place of God. See, in the, in the Old Testament, yes, was there praying to the gods of thunder and to the gods of fertility? Yes. But just as back then, idolatry still happens today. Timothy Keller, you've heard me mention him before. He provides us with a contemporary definition of idolatry. He asks, what is an idol? It's anything more to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. 
Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. A counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. See, sorrow comes from losing one good thing among others. Despair, however, is inconsolable because it comes from losing an ultimate thing. When you lost the ultimate source of your meaning or hope, there are no alternative source to turn to. It breaks your spirit. And that's what we see happening here. This is why the lament is so tragic. It's because Israel and her leaders sought in the created what can only be found in the creator. And their leaders led them in this idolatry and killed those who exposed their idolatry. So I wonder, who are you listening to that is telling you that your comfort-seeking hearts in the created things is okay? Who are you listening to that is calling sin good? Who are you listening to that's telling you that your worship of little g-gods like money and comfort is normal? See, this stark difference between Israel's past and present is because Lady Zion's leaders, her prophets and priests, failed to do what God wanted them to do. Expose idols and invite them to turn back to their merciful God. But it gets worse. We see in this third point that their powerful are now in pits. Verses 17 to 20. See, it wasn't just the prophets and the priests who had a problem. It was their king. Their king put stock in political failed alliances with other nations that promised to come and help. But as Babylon drove a siege upon Jerusalem, all those nations were nowhere to be found, we see in verse 17. And when Babylon came in, they came in with the accuracy of snipers. That they couldn't even go out in the night for their lives were in danger in verse 18. And then all at once, like the swiftness of an eagle swooping down to get her prey, Babylon came in and stole and captured their king, their anointed. Listen in verse 20. The breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, on whom we said, under his shadow, we shall live among the nations. Now, what is the poet describing here? He's talking about their king, God's representative, the symbol of God's protection and comfort and security. God's anointed one is now captured. We read more about this in 2 Kings chapter 25, verses 5 through 7. The historian writes, but the armor of the Chaldeans pursued the king and overtook him in the plains of Jericho. And all his army was scattered from him. And they captured the king and brought him up to the king of Babylon at Riblah. And they passed sentence on him. They slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah. That's the king. So they took his sons before his eyes and they slaughtered him 
before his eyes and then put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains and took him to Babylon. The last thing Israel's king ever saw was the murder of his boys. And now he finds himself in a pit. Why did all this happen? It's because Israel and her leaders had a worship problem. What they worshiped, what they thought would bring them comfort and security, actually killed and enslaved them. They worshiped control. They worshiped security in a political alliance. They sold out their faith for trust in the little g-gods of other nations. They sought, they sought what I seek. They sought what you seek, wealth, status, meaning, relationships with purpose, control, safety. These were their idols, and these are our idols. And you know what the crazy thing is about idols? All these things were created to be good gifts to enjoy with one another that direct us to worship God. But what idols do, they change into a little G-God who now direct our lives. Instead of directing our thoughts and our adoration of the one who gave us these gifts. Idols are simply good gifts that have become ultimate things. Idols are good things that become ultimate things. And when they become ultimate things, they become evil things. This can be seen no more clearly than in Charles Dickens' famed Christmas Carol. I mean, this is a story of Ebenezer Scrooge, right? He worshipped his bankroll. He worshipped money. Money's a good gift. Money is not the root of evil. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. His love of money ruined his relationships. His love of money produced indifference towards the poor and needy. His love of money treated people like commodities instead of image bearers who are fearfully and wonderfully made. And so he was taken on a past, present, and future tour of his life to see what his life has become, to see what his life is destined to become. What would happen to him if he keeps worshiping the good gift of money? And what he saw from the spirits is that he is destined to the death of eternal chains if he doesn't wake up to the reality that money already has him enslaved and in chains. And as he's taken on this tour, he begins to weep. He begins to weep over his idolatry of money. See what the prophets and the priests failed to do for Israel? The three spirits of past, present, and future did for Scrooge. They exposed his false worship. And his weeping is the proper response to sin. And this is what is happening in Lamentations 4 right now. 
not just tears over the consequence of idolatry, but tears over the actual idolatry itself. I mean, there is a sober warning here for us. This is a sober warning for people in any generation. That what, what are you trusting in? What are you attempting to find life in, find comfort in, security in that is taking the place of God? That is taking the emotional and practical throne of God in your life. What good thing have you turned into an ultimate thing? We must learn from Israel's past and present. Her pathetic prophets and priests and the powerful kings that are now in the pits. But fourth, we also have to hear about her punishment and promise in verses 20 through 21. That's our fourth point. There's beautiful news here in verse 20. Israel's punishment is over. The worst is in the past for Lady Zion. But for the daughters of Edom, Edom was the country who was laughing at Israel as they were under this two-year siege. Edom is found gloating in Israel's destruction. And look what we read. Look what we read in verse 21. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, that's Israel, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, you who laugh, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. Justice is coming. Judgment is coming for those who make a laughing stock of Israel. But the worst is over for Israel. It's finished because as we read in verse 11, God's full vent of his anger and wrath has already been poured out. It's in the past. It's over. It's done. It's finished. And Israel can take comfort that their punishment is accomplished. It is complete. There is no more affliction from God towards them. But there is still one final enemy to defeat. Those who are gloating over their calamity. See, if we go back to Scrooge here, what moved him to tears, what moved him to tears wasn't just his idolatry of money. And it wasn't the comfort he sought in wealth and just what it cost him in the past. But what moved him to tears of what it could cost him in the future. Eternal punishment. And as he comes to the close of his threefold tour that one horrific night, he was shook to the core of repentance. Repentance is just turning away from evil and turning towards God. He wanted to turn away from his greed and turn towards generosity. And then, in a flash, he woke up. He realized that it was all a dream. Don't you see the ramification for Scrooge's greed and his idolatry and the comforts that he sought in money was in one sense a punishment, but it was also great mercy. 
for he did not get what he actually deserved like his partner, Jacob Marley. Scrooge knew he deserved death and all he got was a bad dream. Do we know that our idolatry deserves death? That our idolatry leads us to tears, does it? Or does it take utter devastation to see the horror of what becomes when we seek security and comfort in the created and we reject the creator? What will it take to wake us up? That the comfort and assurance that we place in created things will actually lead us to discomfort and devastation. What woke Scrooge up was a horror of his life. Is that what it will take for us, for us to lose everything? Let me point to you a better picture to show you the devastation of our idols. Can I show you what it all looks like so you don't have to face it? Look to the cross. Look to Christ. Look what he took on the cross, where it's Jesus. This is God's anointed. The true Davidic king was tortured by enemies, not just Roman enemies, and not just the, the spiritual elite of the Jewish nation, but us, for we were once God's enemies. Our sins nailed Jesus to the cross. The priests killed the only righteous man ever to live because he exposed theirs and our sin of putting our comfort and security in the created things here on this earth. And on the cross, Jesus took the full vent of God's wrath in our place. We deserve that wrath for putting our trust and our hope in all other people and things that were meant only to be good things and never ultimate things. You see, when we are in Christ Jesus, just as the worst was in the past for God's people, Israel, so it is for us. For the worst that could have happened to us happened to Jesus Christ, God's anointed on the cross, who was found weeping over our sins when we failed to weep over our idolatry, who was found being punished for our idolatry and not us. Don't you see that the only comfort and security that we can find in this life and the life to come is found on the cross of Jesus Christ when he utters, it is finished. Because Jesus has lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we should have died. And when we rely on Jesus's finished work, we can know that God is not disappointed in us, but he's satisfied with us all because of our faith in Jesus and what he has done, not what we have done. We can take great comfort that God has no more wrath stored up for us because he has poured it all out on Jesus. He didn't just pour out 75% of his wrath on Jesus so some could be left over for our future sins. No, all of it was paid in full once and for all on Jesus. You know what this means? It is finished. 
It is accomplished means that you are free from carrying the impossible burden of trying to secure your future through your works or your failed works. It is finished means that you are free from the impossible burden of trying to find comfort in this life that will only fail you. It is finished means that you can finally live a life that is based on faith and thankful worship of Jesus. And we no longer have to live in constant fear of wondering, will God punish us in the future? The answer is no, it's accomplished, it's finished, all because of Jesus. And our punishment is like Scrooge's bad dream. It happened on one dark afternoon where the sky fell black and Jesus bore the brunt of our punishment. He bore the brunt of it. Why? So that we can realize, we can wake up to the reality that there's more life to live here unto the glory of God. That he is our hope. He is our source of comfort. He is our sure security in the life to come. Because it's in Christ Jesus we have great comfort. That any suffering that we do face in this life is not God's punishment. It's his good discipline to make us look more like Jesus. And for it's in Christ Jesus that we find our greatest sure future. It's a great comfort to us because all things on this earth that are created will fail us because they cannot outlast the grave. But Jesus, when our comforter is in him, he outlasts the grave for he rose from the dead, claiming victory over the final enemy that still taunts us and still attempts to laugh at us in our calamity, death itself. Death itself will one day be defeated when Christ returns for us. When Christ returns to wipe away every tear, to wipe away all sickness, all sadness, where all good things finally come true for those who are in Christ Jesus. My friends, just like Israel can take great comfort in the fact that their idolatry has been punished, it's finished. We can take great comfort in the fact that our idolatry has been punished in Jesus Christ, not in us, so that one day we can wake up. We can wake up in newness of life when Christ returns for us and raises us from the grave, and it will all seem like a bad dream. Friends, Christ is coming back to make all things new. Oh, I pray that that is a comfort for our weary souls, and that gives you security in this life, that even when affliction comes and we lament the sorrows of this life, we still have a great comforter in Christ Jesus, our God and Lord who came for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we ask right now that you would expose where we have put vain hope and vain comfort in things of this world. We, where we have sought trust in the created things, 